The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. <laughs> I heard an amen back there. Last week we began a short series of sermons on what I'm calling resurrection life. We always talk about the resurrection on Easter, naturally, and, and celebrate it, but then often we quickly move on from that topic right after Easter, and in the usual ebb and flow of our life, we, we tend to talk and think more about the cross, which is good and important and vital. I don't want to downplay that at all. The cross is at the core of, of this Christian faith really important for us, but so too is the resurrection and what that means for us. And so we're going to linger for a couple of weeks on, post-Easter time here, on the topic of the idea of resurrection and particularly, especially resurrection life. The resurrection life that Christians have been provided and we're meant to experience now. So this is what Christians have been provided, what Christians are meant to experience now, and and I, I hope that in, in everything that I say, there also is, if, it, if I don't state it, there also is an implied, and if you're not a Christian, it's the life you could have. It's the, it's the life on offer right now. Come, take it, experience it, find it. So it's, it's the life that I'm describing that is the life for the Christian and for anybody who would become one. So that's what we're looking at. We started last week in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, the first part of a lengthy passage there, there are three basic paragraphs. We did the first paragraph and then dipped into the application paragraph, the third one. This week we're going to look at the second paragraph and then dip again in the application. And Paul's addressing here the subject of the resurrection of the dead because some, for some reason, in Corinth were teaching that that would not happen. Paul addressed that and refuted it by pointing out, emphasizing the, the full humanity of Jesus Jesus, God the Son, is fully God in full flesh. He's a real man, too. And he says, Jesus died and was raised again. And then he points out some of the ramifications of that not happening. If that didn't happen, we would still be in our sins, Christians out of the church. Still in our sins, we'd be doomed to live in our sins and doomed to perish, eternally perish. Still in our sins, when we die, we would face the right wrath of God, who is just and who is holy and is good, and he's against sin. And, and if we died in our sins, we would face perishing. If there's no resurrection, that, that's, there's, no, there's no gospel, there's no salvation. That's where we are. That's part of what's at stake in the resurrection. And thankfully, the resurrection means that that need not be the case. We need not live in our sins and need not perish. For a Christian, it isn't the case. We're not going to perish in our sins. Praise God for that grace. But there's more in the resurrection, not just removal of perishing, but there's also a healing from what plagues us. It's one thing, a great and glorious thing, not to be the subject of wrath against our sins, but as we talked about last week, that's kind of a negative good news. Good, good, but negative. It's about what's not going to come to you. So 
that's good, but it's, it's more than to realize that the resurrection means that something good is going to come to you, that there's a whole new existence, a whole new life, a renewed order of living is available, already coming, already started, blossoming into fullness, a life in which we are freed to live from sinning, freed from the dominion, from the control of sin over us. A new type of life, something different and new. And our passage today is going to flesh that out a little bit more. It's going to continue and expanding on that idea of what new life is like and what's particularly good about it. So we're continuing off the same kind of idea that this new life that the resurrection provides for us. The resurrection tells us, if you want to put it in a sentence this morning, tells us that God has another life for us that is finally, in which he is finally, thankfully, everything. The resurrection tells us that he has a new life for us in which he is finally, thankfully, everything. Let me read the passage. I'm going to pick up, this is 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to pick up in verse 20. And read through the end of verse 34 and then make three observations from this passage. So remember, he'd been raising as if Christ has not been raised, raising the subject of the resurrection. And then verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized in their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. 1 Corinthians 15. So three observations. Here's the first. Because of the resurrection, there is life after this life. There is life after this life has ended. 
after death has come. Verse 20 says, Christ has been raised the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Having raised all the possibilities of, of the problems of what would happen if he was not raised, verse 20 then turns to the established fact the tomb was empty. Christ has been raised. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep says that twice there and in verse 23 again. First fruits, the, the first bit of, of a harvest yield off of a tree or out of, out of a field. It's not the whole harvest, but it's like what the rest is going to be. It's kind of saying, this isn't it, but look, there is some coming, and it's going to be more like this, more from where this came. Hold on and wait. More to come. That's Christ, the first fruits, raised back to a new and better life. Not just like he was, new and better. He's the start, assuring us that there's more to come when he comes. That's continued to be emphasized in, in a contrast made in 21 and 22. Two men, we have the full humanity of Christ being emphasized here. Two men, one man, the old man, Adam. Second man, the new man, Jesus. And the old man, one man, Adam, introduced and brought death to all, or to change it slightly, as verse 22 says, in Adam all die. Those who are a part of Adam, those who are included in the realm of, if you think of, of like a sphere, a, a ball, everybody in that ball, in Adam, which is all of us, it's all of us, in Adam, all in Adam die. Present tense. This is not talking about something in the past. It's talking about the universal, continual, everyday reality for all humans. They die. Now, now lest we say, well, you know, tell me something else that's obvious. Think about that. We all die. Every single one of us. By the hundreds and the thousands today and tomorrow, day after, day after, day after, a gift to us from our father Adam. He earned it for himself and for all of his descendants when he turned away from the Lord of life and turned into sin and brought us, all of us, along with him. We may object to that, but that's just the way it is. We all, because of him, because of sin, we all die. And, and Leading up to that, we live now lives of suffering and aches and pains and diseases and disorders, all the precursors, a foretaste. And then finally we die, expressing physically, tangibly, the state of fallenness. It, it is not accidental that we stand upright until we fall dead, never to stand upright again. Expressing physically our fallenness. 
We're conceived dying, we're born dying, we grow up dying, and then we die. In different ways, a lot of ways we're like sandcastles on the beach. Some built at low tide go quickly, some further up the water never reaches them, but they dry out in the sun and the wind blows them away, but they all are gone eventually. The material and the environment will not allow them to live forever. The material and the environment does not allow us to live forever. All of us in Adam, we all die. And that is terribly wrong. See, we've got this, we've got this strange bit of reality that, that we know death, we, we fear death, but we're so familiar with it that we kind of, you know, we, we joke about death and taxes, two things that are certainly coming. Taxes are right. The Bible says so. Pay taxes to, to Caesar. Taxes are right. Death is wrong. We are made in the image of God. The God who is good, the God who is right and righteous, the God who is life, made creatures to reflect what he is like, who now, with 100% certainty, all die. That's totally messed up. And before that, we weaken and we fade. We decline, we decay. That's not right either. And even when we're not aware of our weakening and our decaying and declining, death, which we know is out here looming, it colors everything. It makes us think about what should I eat and how should I exercise? I better not jump off of that or do this thing. Everything is, is colored, shaped, living under a shadow of because I might hurt myself or kill myself or someone else. It shapes, it casts a pall over life. Death is awful. What a terrible wrong sin must be to be able to bring to an end image bearers of the living God. To have such power to do such a terrible thing. We should be alarmed at this. And we should mourn it. This is what separation from God does and what it looks like. Falling down and an end of relationship. And we all know. You take this loved one and you put him or her in the ground and you walk away. It's over. That's wrong. We all know that. We all feel it. We try to get away from it by sentimentalizing it, but it's, it's hard to cover up the ache. Something is off here. We should be agitated by that and, and alerted by it, and we should mourn it, and we should learn to hate sin because it's done this to us. So there is, there is something that should say, 
uh, there would be a grating. The sound of when, you, when you're shifting a car and you, and you skip the gears and goes. It should be like that constant. That should be the soundtrack of life. Alerting us. Something's not right here. We usually turn up the radio so we don't hear that. But it comes. That, and then, thank you very much, Adam. But if you were Adam, you would have done the same thing. But thank you very much, Adam, first man. And then in Christ, there's something totally different. (laughs) Totally different. But in Christ, this reality shall be changed. It's not that Christ is going to shore up the sandcastle. He's going to make it new. Changes it and makes us new like him. He's the first fruits. And the crop that follows Those in him, the crop is like him, raised imperishable, no longer subject to death due to sin. It's impossible. I I think it probably is literally impossible for us to actually imagine what it's like to live life without death. We've never been there. We don't know anybody who has. We all share this experience of living life in in view of there's an end, there's something hanging over me. But we're going to live life one day with that not on the table. No longer subject to death due to sin. If we were to keep reading in this chapter, we'd see a a few more details fleshed out. Not, Not a lot, but a few more about what that will be like, what it will be like to be raised new to have a different kind of body, a different kind of existence. Not a lot of detail, but a little bit more. We're not going to move on in this chapter. But the, the point here is that there's going to be a physical resurrection, a physical new life. Something new. We will rise again. Surely as we look around and see all people physically die because we share in Adam, and then as surely as we see, and Christ was raised back to life physically, we can then conclude death isn't the final word. Because we share in Christ, we will share in his resurrection life. A new life, not this, like this one. A new life that doesn't end. This is to be believed and hoped in, and this matters here now. It matters amidst the misery of physical decline. It matters. There there is a hope to be had, a, a release, a relief beyond this dying body. What's wrong? The grading of the gears in life, what's wrong, will be overcome fully, finally, and completely. But only in Christ. Are you in Christ? 
is really important to pause and underline that piece. Because we all know, we, we live in a, in a world that we spend a whole bunch of time not thinking about death. And, and then we commonly say, when someone dies, at least they're in a better place. That's not always true. Let's be clear about that. This is of eternal. There's nothing more important than this. Let's be completely clear about that. Most people in the world die and go to a worse place. That's hard to say, but true. Just last week, we looked at Paul saying, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But remember, he's working on the, the false assumption that Christ wasn't raised, so it doesn't matter if you're in Christ. What he really means to say is the opposite. If you perish not, if you die not in Christ, then you perish. There's something worse than the grinding of the gears. There's something worse than actually physically dying. To then pass on beyond this and stand before God and perish. To be in Christ, to be in Christ is is of tremendous importance then because that's the place, that's the way, that's the only place, the only way. In Adam we all die. In Christ, those who are in Christ will actually come out of the grave and live again, not to perish. We're all forced to deal with death and God has made it so that there is a way to deal with it. To be in Christ. And to say, this, this is not the end. There is a life after this one. So let, let's not romanticize death and, and talk about it. it it's, it's a pall that hangs over life, and then we turn it to be something that's like, okay. Let's be really clear about it. Death is terrible. But in Christ, there's a triumphing over death. And not in Christ means that something even more terrible than death comes. Perishing. This is not pleasant to talk about. What's worse is to never talk about it and then meet it. To be in Christ is of eternal, life-saving importance. To be included in Christ, saved from sin, by his death on the cross, trusted. That's the only way, the only way to come into life after this life.
And that life after this life is so very good because of the next point. Please come to join into, enter into Christ. Trust Him. And if you do, you'll find a life, a life that is to come that is marvelous and a life that is actually bled into our existence now and it's meant to be lived even now. Which leads me to the second point. Okay, so here's the second observation. Only second because it's second in the order in the passage. It's, it's, it's really what makes this life that I'm talking about worth living. It's what, what's what makes a life good. So really this is kind of a first importance thing, but it's, it's second because it's second in order. But anyway, here, second point. The resurrection makes certain that God will again be supreme in all things. The resurrection makes certain that God will again be supreme in all things. Start in verse 24. Something is going on right now at this very moment. Christ is up to something. He is currently... He's been raised, he's seated in heaven, and he is currently reigning as king, actively reigning. He's he's not just watching the clock, waiting for some time or another to come in which he returns until then he's hanging out. He is engaged in actually reigning, in doing something. He is exercising authority, working to spread his rule. 24 and 25 says, This, he's putting all enemies under his feet. Whatever stands in opposition to Jesus and his kingdom, his reign is, by definition, an an enemy. And he's putting all of his enemies, all of them under his feet. The last one to be destroyed eventually is death. That's the work he is engaged in right now at the moment. Whenever that work is finished, then he gives the kingdom over, and that's the end. That's the order the passage lays out for us. And notice here there's a point of emphasis in verse 25, an allusion to the Messiah in Psalm 110, putting all enemies under his feet. You can see this graphically. It's like enemies under his foot, like a conqueror stands on those who opposed him. In 27, quoting Psalm 8, apply to the Messiah all things in subjection under his feet. There's a word they repeated several times so much that we almost get tongue-tied saying it again, again, again. Subjection. Point of emphasis here at the end of the paragraph is this idea of subjection. What the passage is saying is that it was the plan of God the Father for God the Son to come to earth in a human body, to be crucified, raised to life, raised to reign over the creation for a finite time, for a purpose. Subjection. 
to accomplish complete subjection of all the creation. It's like he's, he's a, a king who has returned to a realm that is in total rebellion and piece by piece he brings it all back into order. The Old Testament talked about how the Messiah King, the, the Christ, would do this. He would come and he would spread his kingdom to every corner of the earth, over every rebel power, over every human system, over every way of life, over all the supernatural realm, all, all spiritual beings, every person and every nation, every government and every economic system, everywhere, everything, all. Christ's kingdom is to be total in scope. And he's spreading it. He is actively at work spreading it right now. now it's obviously not completed. It will be finished one day, but it's not right now. But what, what he's about right now is in, in every corner of the globe, in every way, in every situation, in all things, he is engaged with to overthrow or to undermine, to, to frontally attack or, or to subtly make untenable. In one way or another, he is attacking all his opponents, every enemy. Finally, one day on God's timetable, I, I don't know when, nobody knows when, nobody knows exactly how, but not one minute too early, not one minute too late, he will sheath his sword and say, Done. And then the end. Every square inch of the creation will be subjugated. All rebellion put down. Now, that word, I, I keep using it, and I, I say it, I get a little bit of edge on it, subjugated, subjection. That sounds hard. unless what's being subjugated is wicked and awful. And the one who is finally conquering and gaining control over is good and wise, full of love. Then it's a good thing. So maybe, maybe the word grinds on us a little bit as, as hard, but, but in fact it's a good thing that, that Christ is putting down and causing to come to heal, to come under his authority, every rebel power, everything that is against him. And when he's finished all that off, he will, he will pull it all together and then he will kneel before the Father. Within the Trinity... God the Son and, and God the Father are both equally God. They are equal in being and equal in value. They are, they are both fully God. There's no junior God. One. But within the Trinity, they have different assignments. Different tasks they carry out in relation to this creation. God the Father exercises authority, and God the Son perfectly, willingly, in sweet union, submits to the Father. And he will come with conquered kingdom in hand, and he will kneel before the Father and turn it all over to him, as is right. End of verse 28. The Son will also 
then be subjected to the Father. That, so that, God may be all in all. The so that there is a statement about purpose. The reason answers the question why. And we probably can't ask the why question too big. We probably can't over ask that or press that out too far. We should ask why? Why the creation? And why did the triune God decide to send the Son to the earth? And why did he take on a body? And why the cross? And why the resurrection? And why the current reign of, of Christ? And why is it going this way and that way? And, and these circumstances allowed and these ones shut down. Why, why all that? And the answer, through all of it, so that Christ can put it all under God's authority. Beneath his glorious hand, that God may be all in all. Take that phrase apart and try to understand a little bit. God, all in all, so that in all things, in everything, God may be all. God may be everything. So that in all things, in all areas of existence, God may be supreme. That God may be elevated above everything else such that he is the one who has our total attention. The one we act with respect to, the one we honor, the one we love, the one we fear, reverence, the one who is served, his name hallowed, his will done on earth, in the spiritual realm, heaven, God, everything, God supreme, everywhere, in all things. It is hard to describe that in words. Maybe if you think about it in the time, if, if you've ever been in a, in a relationship with another person that was, you thought at least at the time, sweet and the epitome of love, you might have said, he, she, she's my everything. And if you tried to unpack that, you might have used some of the words I just used. I get up in the morning and I think about her. What would please her? How would she feel? I walk into a room where he is and, and I'm looking for him. And everything I'm doing has a, has a mind. I wonder if he's watching. 
Because I really most, I'm talking to you, yeah, 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 but I really want to most please him. I'm trying to impress him. I put on clothes trying to please her. And I think all day long, when, I, when I'm apart from her, I, I wonder, when will I get to see her again? She's my everything. She's my all in all of my life. That's how it feels. I use the words, but do you, do you feel what that's like? She's my everything. That's what the one true good God meant to be for us. Not just a Lord who lords over and reigns, but a lover who is your everything. When you're in that relationship and she's everything for you, he's everything for you, you don't resent that, not a bit. You're thankful for it. This is what God made us for. And that's tragically not how things are now. This is our fundamental problem. This is the core of sinful humanity in Adam. We are most in most. And God, he's some in some. In some of the things in my life where I think he can be somewhat helpful, I bring him along. That's the, that's, that's the, the core of what's wrong with us. It's drastically wrong and it's destructive for us and for our world that we are, that, that we've turned in, we've, we've walked away from the Lord of life and we've turned in on ourselves and we are most in most and maybe God is some in some, but he made us to be and meant for us to be with him all in all. Him are everything. As the lover of our souls, God supreme is joy for the human heart. And we've walked away from that. As we think about that, maybe you feel some, some sense of burden in that, some sense of wrong in that. And, and maybe what arises there is some sense of a need to repent. And that, that's good, that's right. You hear this truth, right alongside of it comes some, some implied exhortation, some implied, that should not be, that's not right, I shouldn't be like that, I shouldn't be like that. And Maybe there you feel a sense of, I need to turn, and Lord, you need to be all in all for me. I want to turn back towards that. Good, that's right, okay, yes. It's not wrong to think that or feel that here. But interestingly, that's not the point of this here. This is not a call to us to make God our all in all. It's not an exhortation towards us, it's a declaration. This is what God made us for. This, is, this would be life. We long for this life and we need it. It would be right. That would be the blessed life. And glory be to God. God the Son's role in the Trinity, 
Christ's role is to redeem the world that God may be once again supreme in it, supreme in you. This is a declaration about what God is doing in the Son for His glory and for your good. It's not telling you to do something. It's telling you what He's doing, what He's about right now. That is really good news because we, we cannot sanely look at the world. We can't, we can't look at Syria today this, this past week, I saw a, a photograph of a pile of boys, dead boys, a pile of them, eyes frozen open, limbs frozen, young teenage age boys, a pile of them, dead in Syria. Is God all in all in Syria? Not by a long shot. So I know what to do. Let's throw 100 missiles at that. That'll fix it. Now God will be all in all. I, I doubt it. Now, as the Prime Minister of Turkey said, to do nothing about that pile of boys is unthinkable. But it's foolish to think that that fixed it. What are we going to do about Syria? You can't, look at, you can't look sanely at the world. You can't look sanely at Syria and, and, and what's going on there. Or, or pick, pick a country, right? Pick a country. Pick this country. Pick a topic in this country. You can't, you can't look sanely at race relationships in this country and say, we've had a couple hundred years to work on that. Thankfully, it's almost fixed. What are we going to do about that? Pick an issue in this country. Pick your own family. Pick your own heart. I can't sanely look at me and say, I'm, I'm almost there. I mean, I've been reading the Bible for a long time. I've been a Christian for a bunch of, a bunch of years. And I think if I just can turn this way and hold my mouth that way and, and just cut off that one little thing and, and, and then... The, the life of God all in all, where he's my everything. It's, it's close. It's, it, it, no, it isn't. And if what the Bible said to me was, here's the deal, Steve, here's the deal, church. God is supposed to be all in all. So get to it. That would be hopeless futile, defeating. We, we look around at the world and we see the problems in here and in our families and in our communities and, and in the faraway places that show up on the news. And if you look at that and you look at it sanely, you're grieved and frustrated and confused and you wish someone, someone had some idea how to fix all of this and someone had some power to fix all this and someone even knew what fixing looked like. Someone does. Someone is. 
is reigning and is undermining and overthrowing and confronting and making untenable and casting down in a hundred ways on his own timetable, maybe not how I would choose. Thankfully, he's not taking my advice because I don't know what to do. But he does. He is at work reigning right now. And all of our kingdoms are being assaulted even now and will end conquered by Christ. Praise God. And his kingdom of glory will come. We drastically need that. We need someone to make our hearts, to make our worlds subject again. Subject to the good God. And this is a declaration that says, that's what I'm doing. It is good for us to live with such a God supreme over all things. That's where our joy is found. If we were to have hearts, lives, minds that were lifted up and oriented towards him, that lived with him as our central focus in his presence always, there we would find fullness of joy at his right hand pleasure forevermore. That's what makes the life after this life good, in fact, because then it's finished. That's, that's what it is like totally. And that's the life that's bled back into the here and now and that he means for us, that he's provided for us, that he calls us to walk into and that he's pushing into us, building into us, making new in us right now. That's the life that's coming and has dawned. We can begin to live this life now. We're meant to live this life now. You can look at your own life and, and you, know, you know full well that he's not all in all, but you also know full well that he's more than he was. You're different. Because he's at work in you. That's what leads us to our final point. comes from the final paragraph, the application paragraph, which we touched on last week, so there'll be a little bit of similarity here. Because of the resurrection, there is a great future hope that we're just talking about, the life that is to come, the life in which God is all in all. There is a great future hope that we should live in light of now. Because of the resurrection, there is a great future hope. A great future that we should live in light of now. So picking up in verse 29, going down to the end, verse 32, we find there are two examples of people who have taken action in this life precisely because they believe there was a future life to come. I said more about verse 29 last week. It's baptism on behalf of or on account of or because of. There are different ways you could translate that phrase. On account of or behalf of the dead. Some people in Corinth were doing this and the church knew about it. We don't know who was doing it. We don't know what exactly they were doing because Paul doesn't go into detail because Paul doesn't expect anybody else to do this. He's just using it as an example. He's not commanding or commending it 
just like he uses his own life, the next example, but he doesn't expect anybody to go to Ephesus and do what he did. He's just using it as an example to show people know there is a life after this life. And when we think about that and realize it, we act differently. We always act in a way that we perceive to be most beneficial to us. And so Paul uses his own life and says, but, verse 32, if the dead aren't raised and there's nothing to come after this life, then why in the world am I doing this suffering missionary thing? I'm going to do that. I should just live for this world. Eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow we die and there's nothing after that. So live for this world right now. This is is all we got. This is all we're going to get. But, brothers and sisters, he says, essentially, wake up and think about this. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, which means that the cross worked and there is a life to come after this life and there's a new freedom to be lived in this life now and in all of it. And Christ is working now to make God supreme in, in all of life. That's all true. And to live as if it isn't true, to live for life here and now to live for self, to live in pursuit of sin is supremely and tragically short-sighted and foolish. If Christ was raised, death is not the last word. He's going to take down death and everything else before it. And to live as if that isn't true is short-sighted and foolish. So wake up. And don't be deceived by the fact that all of the world all around you lives as if that's true. We must not. And realize Paul's tone here is a sharp one. He's looking at people in Corinth, and and maybe here, and he speaks and he says at the end, he says this to the shame of some of them. Realize something. You're surrounded by a world system. Maybe some of it lives inside of you, but there's a whole bunch more of it that's outside of you, that's all around you. It's full of power and rules and influences. Not yet subjected to Christ. And they're all attempting to influence you in in some way to to point you, to steer you, to to invite you. And some are following right along with it. Some of you, he says, are following right along with it. Do not be deceived. This is not all there is. Don't be deceived in thinking this is most important and that this should be your all and that this kingdom here, this kingdom of man, this kingdom of self, that this is the kingdom that most fulfills, that most satisfies, that matters. His tone, wake up. Come to your senses. It's admonishment here. Stop pursuing life here in the here and now as if this is it. I don't really like talking to you 
I mean, me, Steve, doesn't like talking to you like that. So maybe Jesus is talking to you like that. I, I don't know. Paul is talking to Corinth like that. Maybe some here need to hear it too. Stop pursuing life here. How? Well, again, this is similar to last week. Verse 34 in the command there. Do not go on sinning. An interesting, straightforward command. Remember, he issues it to him because he's already, already said that there's, there's a freedom from sin. You've been broken free from the bondage of sin, so I can actually tell you to not go on sinning. You're freed from that. Come to your senses as is right. Do not go on sinning for, this is in verse 34, for, there's a connection there that's causal. What, where, why do I go on sinning? For... Some have no knowledge of God. Which, of, of course, can't mean total, utter cluelessness. He's talking to a church. What he means is some are living separated from knowledge of God. We, we have over here, we have a collection of Jesus is God come in the flesh, died on the cross to atone for sin, raised and is reigning right now and putting down all of his enemies beneath his feet. He will hand it back to the Father and God will be all in all. And there's a life to come. Yes. Now, how should I live? Tell me, world. That's what it means. We, we've got all this. We know this, but we're living separate from him. We live as if unaware separated from the knowledge of God. And so something else then, other than God and his spirit, something else fills us and something else directs us and leads us into the pursuit of life here in the world in the here and now. So, so what do we do about that? We lift up our eyes. We lift up our eyes and we look at, we behold glance at, we behold this risen, reigning king bringing all things to heal. Imagine we look at Christ who is engaged in, in a vast, long work to bring all of the creation to heal. We see in that his love for the glory of God and we see in that his love for you. That's what you need. That's what he is doing. So don't just see in it the, 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 the fact of it. See in it the heart that's behind the fact of it. That's what he's doing. That God would be your everything. So to, bring, to bring that into your life and to, to live with this knowledge of God will make the offers, the temptations of, of the bad company that's around you, all of the world that's around you, it will make that seem as short-sighted and foolish as it is and make God seem as good as he is. Live, brothers and sisters, with the knowledge of God. Perhaps a simple way to do that 
not just reflect upon all of this past, but a simple way to do that. Something you could take into school or work or laundry, child care, carpool. When you notice the drift in your heart, to ask, all in all or some in some? tried to use that phrasing a little bit in my life. All in all or some in some. And of course, what I'm, I know what I mean. You know what I mean? Is God all in all or is he some in some right now? And that, what that may trigger in you, it, it may trigger repentance in you. That would be good. But let it also trigger in you, I need him to be all in all. God help. Thank you that that's what you're committed to. That's what you're doing. That's your work. You're doing that. So repent in that moment, yes, but, but you're seeing there a God who is good. A God who has said, this is what I'm for. This is what I'm about. Bringing all the creation, including that thing in your heart in which you're drifting, Steve, that thing right there in your heart, that too, I'm bringing that into subjection to me to make God your everything. Thank you. That's what I need. That's what you need. That's what God has sent Christ to do. This is a good God. One to be trusted and one to be followed. This is the life that he means to give us. A life in which he is all in all and increasingly so, increasingly so in all of our lives. So let, me, let me stop there and pray. Time to pray. Father, in a lot of ways, I feel like I I feel in a lot of ways stuck trying to express things here that I want to ask you, will you please express them to your people, press them into the hearts of your people? Reign over us, Lord. Lead us into life in which you are our everything. We look to you for that. Thank you for committing yourself to it. Will you carry it out now for our good and for your glory? Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.